Previously on 80s High. When we were growing up, there was such an inspirational source for me for creativity. A source that had an incredible imagination that inspired me as a child to come up with so many adventures on my own. Okay. So next time on 80s High, we're going to delve into the classic, imaginative, hilarious, beautifully inked pages of just a little boy and his tiger, Calvin and Hobbes. Ah, okay. That sounds very exciting. Yeah! That's right, welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that revisits the most bodacious, radical, and tubular things from the decade of the 1980s. We're your hosts, I'm Ben. And Chris. And this is 80s High. Chris, welcome back to Homeroom, man. How's it going? Welcome back. It's another great week. Ready for some more schooling, some more learning. Get in our 80s learn on. I look forward to this day, the minute we stop recording the episode the week prior. When you got report cards, was there like a space at the end for teachers to insert comments? I was recently sent as a joke the comments from like third grade that my parents had kept. Like the actual comments you had. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't good. (laughs) Disruption in class. Absolutely. But did you have comments? Do you recall your comments from report cards? No, I was just thinking about it. I was like, it'd be kind of fun on one of our episodes if in homeroom, we just, we crack open some old report cards and we we just share out some of those comments. (gasps) Benjamin, yet again, was in the principal's office. (laughs) That totally would happen. Hey, I don't want to be rude. Don't Mm. look, don't make it obvious. Don't look now. Um, Do you recognize that guy? Hold on, let, let me act like I'm uh, looking out the window. Be real cool, quick. be cool, okay. be cool, oh, yeah, be yeah, cool. Yeah. Shh, okay. Play cool. Uh, oh, so like uh, the outdoors is right over through that window, isn't it? Oh, isn't it the uh, the new kid that started new a couple kid. weeks ago? I think he did homeroom announcements one day. He did homeroom announcements and they found him in a locker. In a locker? Yeah, in a locker, the jerks. That's not cool. We should invite him into the cool kids club. Yeah, we gotta we gotta watch this guy's back. Hold on, let me, let me play cool. Ooh, I've got a paper football. Hold on, hold on. Oh, yeah. uh, here, hold up a field goal for me. I'm going to flick it over to him. All right, here we go. Here we go. Hey, hey, new kid. <laughs> come come over here. Yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> come, come over here. We want to talk to you. You guys want to talk to me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were just going to talk a little bit today all through school. We're just going to talk in the back of the classroom. Do you want to you wanna chat with us? Oh, I'm down with that. That's why I'm at this school, because the other school threw me out. (laughs) One quick important question, though, in order for you to do that. Yeah. Do you know anything about Calvin and Hobbes? I I know quite a bit about Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, Why do you think I'm as mischievous as I am? Ah. Well, okay, Ben, what do you say? Is he uh, he in the club for this episode? You're in the the gross (laughs) club for this episode. It's good to have you. (laughs) So this show is largely about the 80s, and our audience, our listeners, have heard the origin of of Chris and myself in the 80s. Tell us about your 80s. Where were you in the 80s? What What was your setting? 
Well, I was born in 73, so I was, uh, say, 7 to 17 during those years. Obviously, a very formative time frame. Because of that, I and I lived in just a suburban place, which is very, very similar to uh, Mr. Hobbs uh, and his stuffed tiger, which we'll be talking about. Are you from Chagrin Falls, Ohio? No, from a suburb of Milwaukee. There so we go. similar. Midwest, for sure. At least it was an, o- an Ohio triumvirate show. We got to get, <laughs> it can't just be the Ohio 80s. We got to get somebody else. Thank goodness. Well, that's awesome. We're psyched to have you. Uh, and we'll give we'll give a little more a little more context uh, when we get to history. But we have a lot of ground to cover. One might say it requires a whole treasure map that drawn handedly on a piece of paper with a kid and a tiger on a sled. Mm. Shall we dodge aliens and dinosaurs on our way down the hallway to history class? Well, we first have to uh, get those sweet sweet homeroom announcements. Perfect. Let's get into it. Attention, 80s high. This is A.A. Ron here to share today's homeroom announcements. Be sure to follow us on Instagram to catch the latest show topics and joyful stream of 80s nostalgia. That's 80s high podcast on Instagram. Oh, yeah. Today's lunch menu will be personal pan pizza, broccoli, and a fruit roll-up. Mmm. Today, after school, don't miss sign-ups to join the class of 80s high. Get advance notice of show topics, answer fun survey questions, and share your memories with a chance to have them included in a future episode. You can even be the next classmate to read these announcements. Email 80shighpodcast at gmail.com to join. That's 80shighpodcast at gmail.com. After school today, catch the Cartoon Club. They'll be hosting sign-ups. Come by the art class and meet club president Ed Eisner and get your draw on. The Mogwai debate team travels to New York City next week to compete in the Dr. Vakeman Invitational. Thank you and have a bossa nova day. Go Mogwais. Oh yeah. Okay, well, we know what's on the menu. We know what clubs to go uh, enjoy after school. Now let's go to history class and enjoy a little bit of this topic. What do you say, guys? Sounds good. Let's go exploring. We've welcomed our first guest host ever, uh, because actually did an incredible job doing the morning announcements for us on Battleship. My phone one day just started exploding with text messages because I just I asked the simple question of what do you think would be some great topics on the show? And it was just bzzzt, bzzzt. <laughs> and it was this great list of from Matt of all these awesome 80s properties that we should cover. And there was something that really caught my eye about Calvin and Hobbes. I was like, oh, a comic. I never even thought of comics. Mm. And this is such a unique comic. So we wanted to bring Matt in to help us with this one, which is just fantastic. So why, why even do Calvin and Hobbes if you're not too familiar with it or you haven't heard of it before? The comic strip is commonly cited as the last great newspaper comic. Mm. It was syndicated from around Thanksgiving in 1985 until New Year's Eve 1995, so a great decade run. It was in 2,400 newspapers worldwide. It won the Rubin Award for Cartoonist of the Year, well, Bill Watterson won it, 1986 to 1988. Harvey Award for Best Syndicated Comic Strip, seven years in a row from 1990 to 1996. There are eight Teen book collections in the U.S. that have sold over 45 million copies, and dozens more have been published internationally in two dozen languages. Now, hidden point here, can either of you say Calvin and Hobbes in any other language? Calvin und Hobbes? Oh, you read 
had the German one. That's awesome. <laughs> cool. I didn't, you're so fluent. Calvin E. Hobbs. <laughs> oh, where is yeah, right. <laughs> You're so fluent. We've been trying to reach a broader international audience. I see you've been studying. This is great. I am the international correspondent here. So before we get into the history of Bill Watterson and Calvin and Hobbes, uh, the thing that we've always been remembering to do now, much more recently, is check ourselves before we vocally wreck ourselves that not everybody knows what these properties are. So we have to give a nice little boilerplate of what they are. Matt, since this was your great idea, can you sort of explain to the audience what is Calvin and Hobbes? Sure thing. Uh, well, Calvin's a six-year-old boy, uh, and he's, like I said, lives in a suburban Ohio town, rather mischievous. Uh, and he has what to most folks would look like as an imaginary friend, but to him is all too real, if you will. It's almost a Zen-like uh, tiger, a Zen-like accomplice as he goes through his, his life. And so he has a bunch of adventures with this stuffed tiger that's real to Calvin. And it goes through his life with his family, his life with his friends, his nemesis, teachers, etc. cetera, uh, imaginary dragon snowmen trips to space. Uh, so it really taps into the imagination of what it's like as a six-year-old boy. It's awesome. Everybody loves a good origin story, so let's get into it. Bill Watterson was born in 1958, and you guys have already said it. Bitten by a radioactive spider. Wait a second. Hold on here. <laughs> he said origin <laughs> stories. He said origin stories. Right. No. Uh, so he fell down a well, and a, a flock of bats came over him, and uh, he was inspired to be the fear. Wait, he was at a factory. He fell into a vat of green <laughs> sizzling liquid. And uh, yeah, painted his face and okay. asked everybody, do you want to know how I got these scars? Um, grew up in, speaking of smiling with scars, grew up in Chagrin, Grin, as you said, Falls, Ohio, which is east of Cleveland. And of course, that area, you'll see, especially in the, the colored pages, the colored ink of his comics. I mean, it looks like where Calvin is, these sort of suburban Midwestern deciduous trees and snowy snowfields. It's great. He took his comic inspiration from a number of sources. So Walt Kelly's Pogo comic strip, George Harriman's Crazy Cat, and Charles Schultz's, of course, Peanuts. Mm -hmm. So he was a graduate of Kenyon College. He graduated in 76, which you said was your birth year, right, Matt? 73. 73. Okay, never mind. Yep. Scratch that. So shortly after you were born, he graduated <laughs> Kenyon. There was another cartoonist from there, Jim Borgman, who went on to draw Zitz. And so those four mm -hmm. cartoonists sort of really inspired Watterson's style and, and sort of his philosophy a little bit in cartooning. Universal Press Syndicate saw his comic strip and took it up pretty early on in his career, actually. And it was only in 35 newspapers when it launched. And within one year, it was in 250 newspapers around the country. So it spread like wildfire. That's great. So what I thought was really awesome about Watterson is in the first three weeks of the comic strip, he introduced all the major characters and barely made a change to the cast in 10 years. And it's really not that big of a cast. Except for Uncle Max. <laughs> except, except for Uncle Max. Isn't the guy's name? Uncle Max. I think he's the dad's brother. And he was introduced in like an earlier strip. And Watterson was like, yeah, he didn't really add any new perspective or viewpoint and i regret introducing him and he eventually went away and i think he was only in like a strip or two yep uncle max's first appearance january 11th 1988 last appearance january 22nd 1988 <laughs> 11 days good on him for like quickly recognizing the the failure and yes. not just trying to ride it out for years i respect that for sure we're going to talk a lot about this later, but um, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a hint and a help. Knowing how philosophical the series is, 
Can either of you cite where the names of the two main characters come from, Calvin and Hobbes? England. England. <laughs> At some point. <laughs> I, yeah, I remember Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, I don't know the rest of their names, but it definitely triggers earlier times in England. You're very, very close. So, um, Watterson, again, a graduate of Kenyon, as a little bit of a tip of the hat to the political science department at Kenyon. So, Calvin comes from Protestant reformer John Calvin, a 16th century theologian who believed in predestination. Mm-hmm. And Hobbes is after the social philosopher Thomas Hobbes, a 17th century philosopher with a bit of a dim view on human nature. Now, Matt, you having read a lot of the comics, dim view on human nature, predestination, do you feel like those are topics that come up in the strip? Yes. And I think one of the best parts of Calvin and Hobbes is it's there if you look for it, but it doesn't hit you over the head. Mm -hmm. I think it has a lot of talents, which I'm sure we'll get into, but that's one of them. It can be surface level and it's still amusing, or you can go one layer deeper or a couple layers deeper and it's a different type of amusing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sort of looking at that like deeper philosophical, almost like a, I don't know, a moral mission in some ways, but not hitting you over the head with Calvin Hobbes. Watterson fought incredibly hard against licensing Calvin and Hobbes. When you think of comic strips, I have kind of a, a, another quiz for you two guys. Are there two comics where you just see stuff based on those comics everywhere? Peanuts. That's one. Everywhere there's Peanuts and Charlie Brown stuff. I don't know if you're going here with the other one, but Bloom County had a ton of merch. That's a good one. I had not thought of that, but great point. Garfield. Garfield. Garfield, yeah. The, one of the documentaries we watched in preparation talked about like how there was some at some point there were like 3,700 items of Garfield merch. I remember uh, distinctly at one point, someone in my family had Garfield slippers. There was a Garfield <laughs> telephone. Mm-hmm. Like you picked up the oh, phone. Yeah. It was like his back. And I think his eyes opened when the phone rang or something like that. Or Yeah. Years ago, we, we, we were traveling in China and we visited a, a suburb outside of Beijing and we got off the train and it was a shopping mall and the whole shopping mall was Peanuts themed. Really? And outside was a giant Peanuts mall? plague on the, every, like the characters. I mean, the wow. stores were independent brands, but like everything else was Peanuts. And I was like, hey, did Schultz sign off on this? B, this is too much for me of a comic strip. I'm uncomfortable with the level of peanuts in my face. I'm also allergic to peanuts. I was going to say, you've got a food. <laughs> so there's like a thing there. Couple, you've got a couple natural layers defense. for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Watterson just thought that was like cheapening the comic. He did not want that to happen. And actually, one of the people in the documentary made a really good point of like, if there's a stuffed Tiger Hobbs made, it finalizes the question of the comic. Is Hobbs real or not? Can real come to life? Mm-hmm. If you can hold your own Hobbs... The, the question is answered, and you lose that fun, playful mystery of the comics. He won this discussion with Universal. Discussion's a polite way to put it. My understanding, the, the president of Universal was like, he was the hardest comic writer I ever worked with. But in 1991, it's theorized he forwent at least $200 million of profit from what could have been licensing of Calvin and Hobbes. I mean, clearly he had no profit motivation in right. doing what he did. You have to admire somebody who has that kind of conviction to say, look, I understand this can be a capitalist venture that I'm on, but I'm not really in it for that. That's not my main motivation. And you see that philosophy in the conversations between Calvin and Hobbes of anti-capitalism, sure. anti-materialism. You know, Calvin is so much more about just his imagination. Having just reread a book this week, like, I can't remember a strip where it was about him playing with a toy or stuff. Like, he's very in his head in the forest kind of stuff. 
The other thing I'll just say too, and this kind of came up in the documentary you're talking about, there's also an inclination to then want to dog on Schultz or Jim Davis for over-licensing. And I just have to say, like, you can have a philosophical discussion of what that means for the property. But to me, it's like each creator makes their own decision. And I don't have any issue with that. We could all sit around and argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or what the negative effects are or whatever. But I'm just like, eh, that's their choice. You, yeah. don't have, you don't have to engage in it if you don't like it. I would agree with that. Children of the age are frustrated because they couldn't get a stuff, Calvin or a stuff, Hobbes. As an adult, you can appreciate it. And it's, you know, it's $200 million. That decision's a lot easier to make if it's $20,000, maybe even a million bucks, but $200 million to right. put that kind of, <laughs> like, that's multiple life changing money that he walked, yeah. essentially walked away from because it wasn't of interest to him. And, Comparable around the same time, you had the Simpsons blowing up, Bart Simpson shirts all over the place, and it dilutes it on the broad scale, but it doesn't dilute the quality of the actual product, right? He could have licensed Mm. $200 People would have gotten sick of it, but his art would have still been great. And I think part of why it stands the test of time is he left everyone wanting more, which Mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of bands don't do that. A lot of directors don't do that. Now, it doesn't change. They're great albums, they're great movies, but over the course of time, they take a hit to their reputation because the quality isn't there. The one thing I I think would be hilarious, and maybe Bill would appreciate this, I don't know, is if he sold transmogrifier boxes, and basically he just took regular (laughs) cardboard boxes and just had the word written on the side and sold them for like 30 bucks. So it's like people were ostensibly spending $30 for something they could make themselves. That's like what Nintendo did with like Labo or whatever a few years ago, where they made like these cardboard toys that you could just duct tape your Nintendo controller to. And they're like, it's amazing. Now you're a robot or now it's a fishing pole. <laughs> really? Yeah. But you would pay like 140 bucks for oh, this cardboard kit. It's just cardboard. Loud. Yeah. I mean, the margins on that were amazing. Oh, absolutely. There were a few exceptions, though. Uh, there were a few licensed, officially licensed Calvin and Hobbes items. Uh, near the end of the 80s, he did allow two 16-month calendars. Hmm. The Smithsonian did an exhibit called The Great American Comics, 100 Years of Cartoon Art. And so there was a t-shirt there of Calvin and Hobbes art that you could get. And there actually is a textbook out there teaching with Calvin and Hobbes, which I wish I had a teacher cool enough who used Calvin and Hobbes like, as a lesson. Would Wait, like a real textbook or like the John Stewart this is America's <laughs> text America or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's fair. I did not look into it enough. There's a reason we don't know because that textbook has been described, quote, perhaps the most difficult piece of official Calvin and Hobbes memorabilia to find. Mm. There's like four awesome teachers out there who have it, and that's that's it. That's great. In 2010, Watterson allowed the characters from Calvin and Hobbes to be included in a U.S. Postal Service stamp. Mm. And then, yeah, licensed prints of Calvin and Hobbes were made available and have also been included in, in a few academic works. But that's it. There's no uh, Calvin Hobbes phone, like you said, or Calvin Hobbes popcorn maker or slippers or things like that. Watterson remains the only one of three cartoonists who have been so popular that they were allowed to have a sabbatical from doing their syndicate. Can you guess the artist or the comic strip who the other two who were so popular they were allowed to take a sabbatical? It's not Schultz. I'll give you that. It's not Peanuts. Hmm. The strip I know that has run a long time, and I would imagine there would have been a sabbatical at some point, would be Doonesbury. That is correct, and not the one I thought you were going to get right. 
So yeah, Gary Trudeau with Doonesbury in 1983. Good work. Did Larson do one with Farside? And that's the other one. Oh, Gary really? Larson oh, wow. of the Farside in 1989. Wow. Way that to go. A, that was a shot in the dark. Right. Good guesses, Jen. So that's that's like a- High that's five, a, Matt. Yeah, virtual high <laughs> five. That was amazing. The audience is going to think we were plants, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> that was incredible. I thought I thought there's gonna be a lot of dig in there. So uh, in 1995, Kathy Watterson... Comics. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Kathy. Oh my god. Yeah, it was ah. So popular. Ah. Kathy, break. <laughs> so 1995, sad year. Watterson stops drawing Calvin and Hobbes, and he issues one final comic strip and a short statement to the newspaper editors and his readers that he felt he'd achieved all he could in the medium. Quote, Mr. Watterson. Dear reader, I will be stopping Calvin and Hobbes at the end of the year. This was not a recent or an easy decision, and I leave with some sadness. My interests have shifted, however, and I believe I've done what I can do within the constraints of daily deadlines and small panels. I am eager to work at a more thoughtful pace with fewer artistic compromises. I have not yet decided on future projects, but my relationship with Universal Press Syndicate will continue. That so many newspapers would carry Calvin and Hobbes is an honor I'll long be proud of, and I've greatly appreciated your support and indulgence over the last decade. Drawing this comic strip has been a privilege and a pleasure, and I thank you for giving me the opportunity. Sincerely, Bill Watterson. Reactions, thoughts on the mic drop of Mr. Watterson. I mean, I don't blame him. It seems like a awful medium to have to work in. Just mm-hmm. everything I've read and heard about from cartoonists, people who do comic strips, even if they do uh, web comics, but they're familiar with print media and newspaper media, it just sounds like you're up against a wall and ridiculous confines. And, you know, they talk about it in that in the doc, the the pages kept shrinking and shrinking, get smaller and smaller as newspapers are dying and budgets are slimming and all that kind of stuff. So kudos to him, I say. And whereas a cartoon like The Simpsons, they don't age, but they are topical the entire time. I think that's mm. a difference with Calvin and Hobbes that, you know, it'd be 25 years later, he'd still be trying to find adventures for a six-year-old and his, uh, you know, stuffed tiger without pulling in a lot of kind of current events into that scenario. Because especially as the 25 years have transpired, life has gotten more complicated, right? Part of the appeal mm. of Calvin and Hobbes is just the simplicity of it. A cardboard box is a fort or a transmogrifier or whatever you want it to be. Whereas today we got cell phones and Facebook and, you know, there's all this stuff coming at us from all angles that, you know, even as a six-year-old, they see this kind of stuff. And I think it was a simpler, more innocent time. And I don't know how that would have translated over the last 25 years to allow him to continue to keep it fresh. Mm-hmm. It is interesting though, because he he notes that he, he would be moving on to other things, but in the 25 years since, he does not seem to have done much it's his choice, obviously, but it, it, it was kind of interesting because I think he probably, through that messaging, I would have been excited about what was to come, maybe a different strip for movies or animations, cartoons, whatever. There's just nothing. He's He left us all hungry. I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I mean, that's, that's sort of the finale of history class here is that after he made this incredible mark on culture and philosophy and art and what was the comic section of newspapers – he pretty much all but vanished. He became a, by choice, a recluse. There are professional and amateur documentaries of like trying to track him down and talk mm-hmm. to him, but he won't do interviews with like pretty much anybody. The art hasn't come out. Uh, I, th- I saw in one of the things, I didn't want to, honestly, out of respect for him, I didn't want to track him too much, but I know he lived a stint in New Mexico. 
and I don't know where he is today. And it seems like a lot of Calvin Hobbes fans don't know where he is. I did read, though, this was fun, that he'll sneak into the comic shop in Chagrin Falls whenever he goes mm-hmm. back to visit, and he'll just autograph some of his books on the shelf. He did do that for a while, and I think he quit because then he was finding them on eBay selling. Oh, you know, come on. Capitalists ruined it again. Why do these people have to? It's like trying to get the Xbox or PlayStation. Just leave it. Come on. We don't need Ticketmaster, stop it. Stop buying it up and cranking up the prices. Leave it alone. Man. So, right. His Calvin strip ended with 3,160 comic strips. We heard Watterson's final words, but what was, uh, you guys, one of you said it at the top of the show, what was Calvin's mic drop? What were the last words we ever heard from Calvin? Go for it, Chris. I hope I say it correctly. Let's go exploring. It's perfect. So in prep, in preparation for this episode, so when we picked the Calvin and Hobbes topic, I was like, oh my God, I want to read some Calvin and Hobbes so I can be fresh for memory. I don't have them here. They're at my folks' place. So I was like, oh, well, the library, the library's great. So I went on the library online. I reserved every single Calvin and Hobbes <laughs> book they had in collection. Because, you know, with, with everything that's going on, I've learned the library moves a little slower than it used to. So it could take a while. So I was like, if I order them all, one should get to me before recording. By Thursday, there were six waiting for me. And by today, there were eight. So the one I took, the one, the one I actually had time to read this week was It's a Magical World. Mm. And I just chose it because I didn't remember reading it and I didn't have it. And it turned out to be that the last strip was the official Let's Go Exploring comic, which was awesome. It's a fresh day of snow. They're all optimistic and happy about what the world has for them, the opportunities. And they say, let's go exploring. I love that. It's a phenomenal perfect end to the strip like i don't know how many weeks he thought about uh, how to end it i'm sure you know given how meticulous and perfectionist he is about uh the art probably took him a while but i think he nailed it i mean you could look at that particular strip and you could almost understand the entire 10 years of calvin and hops oh yeah and you know he could have ended it with some sort of like life transition like now we're, they're moving they're moving and what's going to happen in this new place Calvin maybe Calvin was growing up through the comics and so now he's going to go off to college and that's all over you know kind of like what Toy Story did where like Andy grows up and that's the transition for the toys I was just going to say Toy Story 3 that was going to be the <laughs> yeah yeah but just this like hopeful positive optimistic like let's let's go see what it's got for us out there is awesome I loved it or he's a 35 year old man that wakes up from a dream <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a Jacob's Ladder thing. He's in an aside. Well, well, we'll get actually, there's a great insight into that when we get into contemporary culture. Oh, okay. Uh, for sure. Anything that I, got, I missed in history? Anything you guys wanted to make sure we got into? I think you did a bang up job. I was trying to keep it high and tight. Well done, sir. So as we know, any good transmogrifier can only come from critical, careful analysis and programming in a science class. And the closest thing we have to engineering in our school is chemistry. <laughs> So should we hustle on down the hall, dodge detention, and and talk about, uh, you know, what our experiences were with Calvin Hobbes? Let's do it. This isn't a STEM school, so we're going to have to use what we got. (laughs) STEM schools. (laughs) We don't have quite the funding we need for all these science classes. My chemistry book is from 20 years ago. Yeah, it says nothing about evolution. It's got what a few happening? elements missing. <laughs> oh my god, can you imagine? It'd be amazing. So I know, I know, Matt and I were very intimate with Calvin and Hobbes growing up, but that Chris, this is for you. I don't want to leave you in the dust in this conversation. So I want to start right up at the top. Were there comics when you were a kid that you enjoyed? 
Yeah, I was thinking about it. So at home, we didn't get a newspaper. We didn't really have like a lot of money. And so we didn't have a daily newspaper. My grandparents always had it. So whenever I visit my grandparents, for my Ohio grandparents, and then my other grandparents are down in Florida, I go visit them. They always got the paper. And I love the Sunday comics. I'd always grab them out. And I was trying to remember which ones did I actually read. And I definitely looked at Garfield... I did, uh, was it Family Circus? Is that the kids? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Peanuts. Gosh, I think I even read like Beetle Bailey for some reason. I don't know why. I've always felt like there were the adult comic strips in there. Mm-hmm. And now I can't remember any of them. It was like a Morgan something. They all had the very formal looking characters. They weren't as cartoony. And I was like, okay, right past those. Rex Morgan, is that what it was? Rex? Rex Morgan sounds like an awesome, like, 80s action hero. It felt like a boring, like, adult drama. And I was just like, oh, yeah, 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 right, right, right. Rex Morgan, MD. There it is. There it is. Oh, my God. That's awesome. All right. Yeah, like, and for some reason, I never really paid any attention to Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know why. I have to admit, myself, I was trying to remember when I first came across Calvin and Hobbes, and I started to get worried that I was a replicant in Blade Runner. Because I can't remember a moment. It just feels like a memory was programmed into my head that Calvin and Hobbes was always there. Mm. Matt, can you remember how you found or came across Calvin and Hobbes? Yep. We had three newspapers at the time, believe it or not. Uh, Two in Milwaukee, one in the afternoon, one in the morning, and then one in my hometown. I believe it was in the morning version uh, out of Milwaukee. So I had the dailies. Noticed it there, and then obviously the Sunday version. I was heavily into comics, steering away from Doonesbury because that was over my juvenile brain at the time. That was very adult for a child, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I did appreciate uh, Bloom County. That was probably my my other favorite one, and then when the far side came along, Wizard of Id. Was Bloom the one who was Uh, like a penguin? Was Bloom kind of like he looks like a penguin kind of guy with a tie? Opus, Opus and Bill the Cat. You need to spend some time with that, Ben. I would dig it. It's it's my jam. Yeah, it's good. It's I would say somewhere between Calvin and Hobbes and Doonesbury. It it gets topical, mm. it gets political, uh, but the art is entertaining to even a kid because uh, Bill the Cat's just a nut. And <laughs> is that like the, he's like orange? He's almost Garfield. He's like orange and black and striped, but like very sharp angles on the body. Yep, wild hair, yeah, okay. one eye, one eye wide open, one eye kind of shut, tongue out, ack. It sounds like my spirit animal. I like it. This is good. You're pretty damn close, actually. Uh. (laughs) We asked the class of 80s high if they could remember when they came across Calvin and Hobbes. So Justin says, I think I first found it uh, when the local paper began running them in the comic section or in the quote unquote, the funnies. Funnies. The funnies. I think we called them the funnies, too. Yeah, that sounds familiar. The funnies, yeah. Yeah, and Katie said, Sunday paper comics, and then my dad started getting the books. That's a good parent right there. Thanks for parenting well (laughs) and bringing the books home. And Nathan has a much more detailed and sounds similar a little bit to Matt here. Uh, My dad had a lot of comic compilations like Doonesbury, Farsight, and of course, Calvin and Hobbes. They were some of the first books I read, which explains my weird sense of humor. I definitely related to Calvin and his wild imagination. It's great. Some of the first books he remembers ever. That's awesome. That's great. Now, I certainly like, I enjoyed like reading the comics, uh, but Matt, right before we started recording, you texted me a picture. Mm-hmm. What was the content of the picture that you sent me? It was uh, really poorly painted versions of Calvin. There was five of them with various expressions I'd seen, you know, just mimicry, imitation, sincerest form of flattery type of stuff that I probably <laughs> created in middle school. I took all the art classes back then and I wanted to be an artist. So I took every possible art class as many times as I could take it. 
And that was one of my crappy creations. First of all, I was like, I didn't know if you did that today or if that was from childhood. I didn't really know exactly when you did the Kelvin. But like, how how deep did you have to dig to find that? Or is that like in your briefcase when you go into meetings like today? Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just to encourage the, you when you open it up. Yeah, it's painted on the side of my car. <laughs> <laughs> I took all these art classes when I was younger. So my parents, as a lot of parents do, they just collect all your junk. And so several years ago, I just uh, kind of took a picture of everything and I knew I had it and it was sitting there. It's awesome. It was a great find. So like, were there any comic, uh, like collections, like the books, were there any books that you had that you really remember that were your, your favorites? I did not have any of the books. I just kept up with the newspapers over the course of time. I have since then find these, the authoritative Calvin and Hobbes. So this is two books. Yeah. Yukon Ho and Weirdos from Another Planet, and then there's the Indispensable Calvin and Hobbes. Uh-huh. So these are just paperback versions, and then uh, several years ago, I bought the the hard copy of the entire series. I think there's a three-volume three set. The only one I can remember that I had, I owned Yukon Ho, and I love that. And I was so, I was kind of bummed where, like, when I tried to rent all these from the, check these all out from the library, I got almost all of them except Yukon Ho, which must mean it's great, because there's none available. So we've touched on so far, and Chris, this is awesome. So, so Matt, if you're unfamiliar, this is not Chris's first rodeo in, in the podcast world. He ran a show before called Creative Commoners mm-hmm. about the art of creativity and being creative. Yeah. And that is a huge part of who Calvin is with Hobbes, is his imagination and his creativity. Definitely resonated. I think it was probably on the older side because, again, I was 12 at the time this started. So it was like 12, 11 or 12 to 21. And, of course, your interests kind of transitioned away from playing with forts. But I was still young enough, I think, to tap into it. And I think that's one of the – like I have an 11-year-old nephew that reads the books over and over and over and over and over again. He just picks them up and rereads them. And that's part of the lasting nature of it over the course of time is it taps into – what it's like to be a six-year-old kid. You know, I'm 47 now, so I read it now, and it's, you know, some of the stuff doesn't, it's hard to get back into that space. It kind of rekindles a bit, but, you know, you can't tap it quite as easily as you could when you're six. Right. But at the time, you know, I was 11 or 12 as it started, and it was still fresh and and took me back, you know, just a couple of years at that time to that imaginative, uh, you know, innocent time. His imagination is so spot on. That is something that's hard to relate to as an adult. We're like, as a kid, I would definitely be going through the normal day, but imagining a completely different setting. Mm. That like something, a whole grander, crazier, wilder story was happening mm-hmm. around me. Whether it was in school, the, I, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a small dead-end suburb surrounded by miles of forest. So I grew up playing a lot in the woods through the seasons, just like Calvin did. I mean, it's Ohio, right? Chagrin Falls, the same freaking setting. But, you know, like, so many of the comics are, you know, the the first seven or eight panels are him, like, stranded on an alien world fighting for his survival. Or it's like he's a T-Rex hunting sad, pathetic little mammals that he's going to devour. And the last panel, he wakes up and it's, you know, it's reality of, like, Calvin, pay attention, kind of the Mm -hmm. theme. That was so on point for me as a child that age, which, again, is hard to imagine now. But then it was like it was common stance. I could certainly identify with it and think back to when I was a kid because, you know, I had my friends I'd hang out with. But unlike you, Ben, you had like the the neighborhood of friends that all lived together. And I moved around a lot. And so a lot of my friends lived in different places. They just weren't nearby. 
So in between playing with them, I played by myself. My brother was four years older and we didn't have a lot in common as kids. So we didn't really play together too much. So I had to create a lot of my own fun, whether it was with action figures or running around or, you know, like stuffed animals or just getting on my bike or whatever. And so I could definitely, definitely identify with that part of my childhood where you kind of had to create these scenarios in your head and play them out. Yeah. And I definitely remember, I actually have a memory that I'm too embarrassed to like reiterate on the show, but I remember being caught by my mom. I was fully clothed. I was in the living room, but like in my own world. Where's this going? Where's this going? Yeah, this time. <laughs> in my own world. And I was, I was honestly, yeah. the memory, I was probably like four. It was like 1988. Yeah, 1988-ish. And she was like, Ben, what are you doing? And I was like, uh, uh, hey, mom. I also like, Calvin and Hobbes, uh, reading the comics, I think it was the first time I ever realized you could make stuff out of snow that wasn't a snowman. Like, mm. you know, there's snowballs and forts and snowmen for sure. But he would make like these, you know, the horrendous, monsterable snow mutants that he was fighting and other like crazy crap. And of course, like as you get older, you see what people make out of sand and snow and like you get it. But as a kid, Calvin and Hobbes gave me the idea of like, oh, you could make some weird stuff with snow. That's like funny. Let's do that. We kind of allude to this as we talk about this. But the fact that Watterson was late 20s to late 30s as he was drawing the strip and able to tap into that as effectively as he did is phenomenal. And to do it for 10 years, right? To to maybe have one or two strips where it's like, oh yeah, he really tapped into something there versus pretty much 10 solid years of tapping into what it's like to be a six-year-old boy. That is just mind-blowing to me. Yeah, 3,100 plus comic strips. 3,100 times he did that. And to do it in a deep and respectful way. Like, you know, one of his influences were Zitz and being from Southwestern Ohio, mostly. I grew up reading a lot of Zitz because that was big in, in my teenage years. And Zitz sort of mocks the teenage experience that he's this lazy punk, can't get his stuff together. He's a mess. And Watterson never seems to dig on the six-year-old experience <laughs> Ever. It's a very wonderful experience. It's a reverence. I mean, with, mm-hmm. with, yeah, with, with the challenges of bullies and homework and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, reverence is very, very respectful of that, which is amazing. I think that's very cool. So this is what I was kind of curious to ask you both. I found some that I identified with. So, you know, there are these types of strips that Bill would come back to. You know, you think about the different characters or, you know, the wagon, the transmogrifier, all those things. Were there certain I don't want to call them storylines per se, but those types of strips that you liked the most, that you look forward to the most? I really liked playing in the snow. Like as a kid, we we had mm. a really big hill in our neighborhood for sledding. And then there was a forest where we ran amok and went crazy. We would build forts in each other's yards. And so like I really related to all like the sledding and the snow fort and the snow building adventures. And when that snow wasn't around, that was a forest. When I was rereading this, the It's a Magical World this week, I was annoying the bejesus out of my partner because she was like focused trying to do something and I was just giggling in the corner and I'd be like, hey, can I, can I just read something to you? And she'd be like, fine. So I'd read it and she'd be like, yeah, it's funny. But then I did it like six more times and she was like, actually, no, I'm trying to finish this. Can you just read it to yourself? There was one strip that I read to her where um, they're walking along a creek and Calvin's like, oh my God, look, there's like worms and grubs and a dead crayfish like in this stream. Oh, gross. And Hobbs is like, whoa, really? You struck gold, man. And like, that was my summer. So the snow and the forest are like mm. settings and storylines I really loved in the Watterson comics. That's awesome. Totally with Ben on the snow scenes. Uh, and then I would say it's less a particular type of thing, but the interaction with the parents, which is kind of 
I mean, they're typically parents, but it's funny almost every single time because mm-hmm. you can you can put yourself in both positions. And then the other ones where it's the teacher, but you don't know it's the teacher until the second to last or the last panel because yeah. the rest <laughs> of it is dinosaurs or aliens or monsters or whatever else. Those, no matter the theme, just crack me up. Right. So you've got those themes that come up. And again, you've got gross. Get rid of slimy girls is their boys club. <laughs> yep. We're always trying to, you know, uh, strategize to get rid of Susie. I want to point out that girls does not start with an S. They just capitalize the S on the end of girls. It was a real stretch to make that acronym. So uh, the, the mutant snowmen, Calvin Ball, cardboard boxes like the transmogrifier. Mm-hmm. He plays the character of Spaceman Smith. And then the great noir detective, Tracer Bullet. So I wanted to say that was the one I got the biggest kick out of. Tracer Bullet? I loved every one of those that I came across. <laughs> so again, reading them as now, uh-huh. a 40, almost two-year-old. And I love noir detective themes, but usually when, not that you're mocking them, but you're kind of playing with them, like modern interpretations of it. And the great thing that Watterson said was that he's like, I didn't really know noir. I just kind of did my interpretation of it. But it kind of works because Calvin, as a six-year-old, probably wouldn't know noir detective stuff either. So he's just kind uh-huh. of spitballing what he thinks he knows of it but he he just got that campy language and the the dripping atmosphere both in the words and in the way that he drew it i just loved all of those and for about a year and a half i actually made a web comic that was about like what a noir detective that is in current day so what? he's sort of operating in this fantasy world and everyone else is just <laughs> being normal. So he's just like outcast in a regular world. I didn't know that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Did you draw it? I drew it. I wrote it. Yeah, I did everything with it. I'm going to need a hot link to that. 83. Are you kidding me? Strips, I think. Yeah. What was, what was his name? <laughs> his, it was called Detective Agency. His name was Nick Agency. So Nick he was Detective Agency. Agency. Oh my God. Not super original, but it was, <laughs> it was fun. I played with around with it i drew it all with my finger on an ipad and uh it's like the best art in the world but if you look at the first strip and the last one i was very proud with where i like brought the artwork but it was so much fun to do and that's super cool so of course when tracer bullet came up i was like oh this is amazing i loved it we should find something from the 80s noir to do that would be a fun topic for the show because i i always loved there was a there was a great spider-man video game that came out about a decade ago spider-man's shattered dimensions and that's where i learned about noir spider-man mm. and you know that character was played by nick voiced by nick cage and spider-man enter the spider-verse recently but i, oh, I that's love, right i lo- yeah a little taste of noir is awesome let's uh, let's do some research let's think of a good 80s somebody again i always say this on every podcast somebody just got in a car accident screaming a noir property from the 80s we're supposed probably to do. Probably classmate Mikey. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> probably He's probably screaming at us right now. Like, do the thing! <laughs> you morons! <laughs> Your phone's going to be blowing up two seconds uh, after he hears that. so angry. Can we circle back to what Chris said with his comic strip? So over the course of 83, you, you had a source of pride in terms of how it evolved and how by the end it was better, right? And I think that's one of the things that strikes me about Calvin and Hobbes is the artwork barely evolved the entire time it ran. It was almost mm. as if it oh, was yeah. fully involved from the start. There's some subtle things. You really got to look for them. Calvin looks a little bit different at the beginning than he does at the end. Hobbes, just a little bit different. But I think you compare that to The Simpsons, <laughs> where for 30 right. years, maybe The Simpsons have looked oh, very, yeah. very similar. But at the very beginning, they look almost like another family. 
And you see that with a lot of different strips. And that's one thing that's just remarkable about Calvin and Hobbes. It was fully realized when it hit the ground. That's a really good observation. Yeah, that like he didn't really try and change the artwork a lot. And you look at those early, yeah, you look at the early Simpsons episodes to modern and it's like completely mm-hmm. different. Especially the ones that were on the Tracy Allman show. Like those yeah. are really rough in comparison. And they changed his people too, right? So Homer was not so likable early That's on. True. But now he's just right. a lovable oof. The cartoonist format is very interesting. This is brought up in the documentary too. And I can't remember which other cartoonist said it, but he's like, it's one of the few mediums where you have full control. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there were some constraints that Watterson had to deal with, but I think one of the things that he liked is he could create what he wanted to create. He didn't really have to collaborate Mm -hmm. with anybody to do it. And that's also a reason he didn't want to do merchandising, because then he'd have to collaborate and that would compromise the vision that he had. He saw it as a thing of control. Like he wanted to have his vision as he saw it, nobody else's input. Which is similarly how Calvin lived his life of like he had his vision and just wanted to like break the confines of everything. Like one of the strips I read tonight, he was talking about like, you know, if you just got rid of like the building and the teachers and the desks and the homework, school would be pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) And and Hobbes is like, well, that's just no school. You could say the same thing about a lot of things in life. If you just got rid of all the elements, it wouldn't be so bad. True, but Calvin's not wrong either. (laughs) No, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Um, So there are all these stories threads there are all these settings you know i talked about how like it inspired me to look at like what you could build out of snow differently uh it definitely gave me ideas for like cardboard box usage Mm. matt reading calvin and hobbes as a kid did you get any ideas from calvin and hobbes just inspiration for my crappy artwork (laughs) a lot of what he imagined i was had already imagined or was imagining as a child of that age i don't know that i was particularly inspired i was making forts i was using cardboard Mm. i was making snowman i was you know in the woods pretending i was indiana jones I was doing all of those kinds of yeah. uh, adventuresome things. Well, our readers, we had some responses, and the readers pretty much said the same thing. From the respondents, the clear and resounding answer is Calvin Ball. Yeah. Both their approach to games and to life, that was the big resounding influence. Yeah, right. I mean, one of the responses says, like, they called it Luke Ball, because that was his brother. But for those who haven't, like, read it, like, Calvin Ball is basically any game you would play as a kid, and you just make up the rules as you go. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of strips of... Calvin and Hobbes and like the babysitter fighting as they read as they try and up the game of like rules that could beat the other person. Uh, like you were talking about Matt, like just capturing childhood so reverently and accurately, but being in his thirties, like that's so true. As a kid, you would just make up crap all the time. Most notably, if a game wasn't going the way you liked it. I was gonna say that benefited you especially. Right, exactly. <laughs> New rule. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, the babysitter's with him, and she's like, I'll try Calvin Ball. And so he's like, all right, uh, if, a, if a water balloon gets thrown in the air, the babysitter has to catch it. So he chucks it up, and she's like, what? But if it's intercepted, then the babysitter has to take it in the face. And so he's like, try to grab it. Like, those are just making up rules nonstop. Very accurate capture of childhood. There's a wiki for Calvin and Hobbes on fandom. And there's like a list of 30 <laughs> random items. Amazing. That you could use yes, uh, to play it. Pretty much anything you find. Are there any good standouts in the list? Uh, I mean, there's the usual things uh, like croquet mallets, flags, soccer balls, wickets, Mm. secret bases. I think uh, every child had a secret base somewhere. Corollary zone, the perimeter of wisdom. (laughs) I don't know what those are. They sound amazing. (laughs) So good. Well, and that's that's a point you said, the corollary zone. is something that in in rereading Calvin reminded me, Watterson put really high-level vocabulary into these. It is not written stupidly or patronizing or talking down to readers. 
you read about Watterson too, a lot of these comics that made serious political commentary, made commentary about society and capitalism like we've talked about. But he was really big on commenting on art. You know, like there's a whole strip where Calvin comes out of his bedroom. He's like, oh, my God, I'm in neo-cubism. And it's all drawn like crazy and cubic. It was very educational, but not in like an annoying, boring Mm -hmm. way. Like there were words that were like, ooh, I want to find out what that means. It kind of reminded me a little bit of when we talked about Choose Your Own Adventure and Ari Montgomery, who authored a lot of those early books. And the fact that people identified so much with this comic strip that it made them actually want to look up the word. Yeah. He did it in a way that invited you to want to know what it meant because you would then get more meaning from Mm -hmm. the strip you just read. You know, talking about these story themes that come up again and again, there's one last part of chemistry we got to get into that we can't skip over. There's a common story thread where Calvin is coming home from school and somewhere on his house's property is Hobbes. And he's waiting as a feral predator of the jungle to try and pounce and catch Calvin. And one of the early strips I reread this week, Calvin's like, ah, come on, this is ridiculous. And then Hobbes leaps off and he's like, come on, let's go do something fun. And Calvin says, you know, it's hard to be mad at someone who's so excited to see you. (laughs) It was one of the ones where I was like, hey, hey, can I read you something? And she was like, oh my God, another one? Okay, what? And I was like, it's just really sweet. Let's talk about Hobbes. There's a difference between imaginary friends, where there's no physical object representing the friend. And then there's an object that's been anthropomorphized that you and your head see as alive, which is Hobbes. Did either of you have either of those? I had stuffed animals I liked, but I never really personified them. And I didn't have an imaginary friend either. Yeah, I had buckets of plush animals, but I did not anthropomorphize them. I can't recall a toy or a stuffed animal that I like had a reoccurring story with that Calvin did that was like the same personality it was named. Certainly right. when I like did imagine a mm-hmm. play with toys, to me they were like alive and we were doing this. Like let's yeah, exactly. let's rock and roll. But actually um class of 80s high had some imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. So one writes as an only child in the country, I had plenty of imaginary friends and personality laden toys. Calvin's friendship with Hobbes makes total sense to me. So that's cool. Thank you. So being in the country, maybe harder to have a big group of friends. I, you know, I didn't grow up my entire childhood in the country, but about three years I did. And I had to get on a state route and ride my bike for several miles to go to one of my nearby friend's house. And oh so, yeah, which is kind of crazy to like think about. Like on the street? Was there like yeah, a sidewalk? Like, uh, or it's like a country It's like road. a two lane highway, like 55 miles an hour. Oh and I'm just God. sitting there riding my little bicycle. Oh my God. If you had friends in school, they didn't live right in your neighborhood. They lived probably miles away. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Do you hear that? Parents of 2021, calm down a little bit. <laughs> you used to ride miles on a country road where cars were whizzing by 50 miles per hour. Chill. You can't be in your own front yard by yourself as a kid now. Great. The other one we need to have a really intense discussion about, because I know it hits on a topic near and dear to you, Chris. Matt, I think you'll be intrigued by it, too. The other class of 80s high student said, I had an imaginary friend named Jessica I liked to push on our tire swing. Mm. So you're a parent. You come out in the yard. Your child is pushing a tire swing. And they're like, hey, what are you doing? They're like, I'm pushing my friend Jessica on the tire swing. Is it a ghost? Is it a poltergeist? Are you haunted? Do you have to burn the tree down? What What's going through your head? Well, you're asking me. <laughs> Both. I just want to know what, how do you, like. Well, you singled me out for some reason. So I was trying like to see what. you like scary movies. You like, you like ghost oh, stories and stuff. yeah. So well, she's like, this true. is my friend, Jessica. Again, swing, we swing, come Jessica. play with us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She wants to play a game where we both hold our breath underwater and see who wins. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 
It's not an episode of 80s High if Chris doesn't go into something terrifying. This is the nightmare injection. I didn't think it was, I had to work real hard for a Bill Watterson nightmare injection, so- <laughs> but the, uh, like what happened to all of our knives? Oh, Jessica hid them. Jessica. I'm drawing Jessica. And it's a giant shadow scribble monster like on her sheet. Jessica needs a gallon of gasoline? Why? <laughs> so Hobbes, though, I honestly feel in reflection, and this helped ping this again when I was reading through Calvin and Hobbes, it's like, I think Hobbes was an element in my childhood that helped me figure out what a good friend is supposed to be. Mm. Because like when I read through Calvin and Hobbes, Hobbes is like comfortable and flexible to go along with Calvin's insane games and adventure. He's just so happy to like support Calvin and be there, but also very strategically checks Calvin. Mm-hmm. Where like Calvin's having a thought, he's having a rant, and Hobbes will just be like, here's a little drop of reflective wisdom you might want to consider. What do you guys think of Hobbes? I mean, to start with, he's adorable, just aesthetically. He is adorable. You nail kind of the two parts in that. He's loyal. He's he's got Calvin's back. He's he's always there for him, even if he's tackling the first thing uh, when Calvin gets home every day. But like you say, he checks him. He has. This is what I mentioned at the very very beginning, like that that Zen kind of understanding of the world that he's bringing into Calvin. You know, it's a more sophisticated view than just a, like a a six year old mentality tiger. For sure. I mean, I love that he's so excited about lasagna. I love that he always gives John. Oh wait, sorry, wrong orange cat. <laughs> wrong no! orange cat. Darn no! it! Oh. Bill Murray did a great job voicing uh, Hobbs. It was great. No. Do you have any regrets, uh, Garfield? <laughs> Best line of a great movie. It's a Zombieland. Zombieland. Thank you. I, was, so I almost called it a zombie side. That's a board game. Um, no, I think what I found interesting about Hobbs, I guess it's the the concept of him that this is. An alternate viewpoint within a six-year-old kid's head that's sometimes the voice of morality, but it's sometimes also the voice of like, let's go do this thing. Let's go explore. Let's go have fun. And I think, Matt, you put it well with it being sophisticated for a six-year-old, but it's still believable (laughs) somehow. Like on one hand, you'd be like a six-year-old wouldn't have this level of sophistication to be able to have these point counterpoints in their own head, but it still somehow works. Yeah. And I, I just love the depth to Hobbes. You know, we talked about how philosophical and deep Calvin and Hobbes is. Mm-hmm. I joked this week that I said, uh, I said I didn't take philosophy in college because I'd already read Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> I, already got, I already got the philosophy I needed. And it feels yeah. like a half-truth, honestly. You know, they there was one panel in this book they read, um, they, they go into like nihilism, where Calvin and Hobbes are arguing what's worse, where nothing matters or everything matters. Mm. And I was like, this is a six-year-old kid and his stuffed tiger. There's, there's another strip where uh, the dad... He's really into cycling, right? So he's like riding through traffic. He's having a terrible day riding his bike. He gets like a crash. He comes home. He's all bandaged. And like the punchline, the only line in the strip is the key to having a job you love is having a hobby you hate. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, interesting. And even today, I text you guys a picture of this. So Calvin walks into the living room and his dad is listening to the radio. And I was like, how poignant going downstairs that we're about to record a nostalgia podcast. So the radio says, you're listening to Boomer 102 Classic Rock, where we promise not to expose you to anything you haven't heard a million times before. We'll get right back to more hits from those high school days when your world stopped. But first, here's our critic to review the latest movie based on a 60s or 70s TV show. And Calvin just walks out of the room, just glaring at his dad like an idiot. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, Watterson. It's timeless, man. So timeless. Any other thoughts on chemistry? Reflections on Calvin and Hobbes? 
the one thing that I'll say is one of the strips that I really enjoyed, it's a whole storyline where Calvin turns the transmogrifier into a duplicator and he's going to duplicate himself. Yeah. <laughs> and it's cool because Watterson talks about how like he started that storyline and wasn't quite sure where it was going to go. And it kind of surprised him along the way because I think it ran for at least a week in the newspapers. Mm-hmm. It was just very interesting because it gets out of control where his duplicates make duplicates. Yes. And then they're going to divide <laughs> up who goes to school what day. But what's so charming about it is the way that in his mind, he's still talking to all these duplicates, but you see it from the mom's perspective and the teacher's perspective. And still somehow you're like, it could still be true. The Just the way that he drew it and told the story and the panels. I was like, wow, this could still actually be true. Maybe he did duplicate himself. And I thought that was very delightful. That's pretty awesome, actually. And I think this was raised in the documentary. All of this boils down to ultimately two things. It's great writing and it's great art. Each of those could have somehow stood on their own, right? The art could have been okay and the writing was still good enough to hold its own. Or the reverse, where the writing was so-so. But if you just look at the strips, they are pleasing to the eye. You can get the sense of what's going on. You can have a laugh even if you don't understand the writing. And Bill put both of those together and they're both great. Again, this is just one of those phenomenal things. There's not a lot of people that can do that. That was a great point in that doc. I thought that was really well done. I think the the one guy even said, like, you could take all the words out and the pictures still speak for themselves. You take all the pictures away and the writing still matters. And yeah, exactly. When you put them both together, they both are so amazing and they just become even better. Well, my my stomach is grumbling and I'm a little nervous that what's been served for lunch is going to come alive and jump on my face. I really want a pan of lasagna right now, is all I have to say. Freaking Garfield! We've been, talk- we've been talking about Garfield for over an hour. I'm starving. It's <laughs> because you're recording into your Garfield microphone for the podcast. just in your face the whole time. Oh, my God. Uh, so I say we grab a bite and then uh, and then go find out what, uh, what Garfield, I guess, influenced other comics going forward. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, Garfield and friends. We're, we're ready, ready to, to party. We're ready to party. We're ready. Yeah. I hope you bring lots of spaghetti. Come on in, come to the place where fun never ends. Come on in, it's time to party with Garfield and friends. The cartoon show to watch when you won't settle for just any cartoon show. Contemporary culture, what did Calvin and Hobbes what did it influence going forward? And there's an interesting reason why my bullet list is really not that long. Again, we know that he refused to license it for anything. So there's not a lot of stuff that comes afterwards. He did do an interview in 2013. Oh. One of the things he said was that when he finished Calvin and Hobbes, separately, Jim Henson, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg all came to him and were like, we want to do Calvin and Hobbes stuff. 
And he said, no, that he had zero interest in any of that because there was no really upside for Watterson to do it. Now, he said no to $200 million. Could either of you say no to Jim Henson, George Lucas, or Steven Spielberg? But here's the thing, though. Yeah. For the same reason he doesn't want a stuffed animal because it takes away the illusion, when you put a voice to Calvin, when you put a voice to Hobbes, it's no longer what you want it to be. It's what someone has decided it to be. And I think what he, you know, based on the the philosophy he and he extols in the comic and just the person we know him to be, I just feel like that to him takes away the the joy and the illusion and the imagination of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. If I heard the voice of either of them, I'd be yeah, like, right. you're wrong. That's not what they sound like. Right. That's a really good point. Before we go down this list, so there was some re- research we did. So in 2010, a book came out called Looking for Calvin and Hobbes, The Unconventional Story of Bill Watterson and His Revolutionary Comic Strip by Nevin Martell. And Nevin inspired the guy who did the documentary we watched on Amazon Prime. Nevin's in it briefly talking about it. But the documentary right now on Amazon Prime, I mean, Amazon stuff rotates all the time. So by the time this episode comes out, maybe it's not on Amazon anymore. But at one point... In February 2021, there was a documentary on Amazon called Dear Mr. Watterson, an exploration of Calvin and Hobbes. I mean, he got a lot of big Mm -hmm. hitters for the documentary. He talks to a lot of really famous uh, cartoonists from the 80s. Like over 10? Like 10, 12? Yeah. He he talks to the head of Universal about working with Watterson, and he goes back to – What's the, what's the town? Chagrin Falls. He goes to Chagrin Falls to like interview the comic book store owner and people from all over town. Does a great job. Oh, and just a lot of fans. Yeah. It's a whole broad spectrum. And I, I remember the one guy was so great. He's like, I didn't at least read mm-hmm. English. I couldn't remember if he said he didn't speak English. But he was just so intrigued by it. It made him want to learn English yep. just to be able to read the comic strip. And I was like, that's amazing. That's so cool. That was awesome. So what things do you guys feel? came out of Calvin and Hobbes. Where do you see inspirations in the world after Hobbes und Calvin, the German edition? (laughs) (laughs) Calvin E. Hobbes. (laughs) And Espanol. There was, and this was in the documentary. This has struck me as I've seen this strip, and I won't remember the name of the strip at this point in time, but there was one that appears very, very similar in artistic style to Calvin and Hobbes. I think every... I can't imagine a cartoonist that has come along in the last 35 years or however long it's been that has not been influenced in some way, whether it be the philosophical approach, the artistic style. It was such a ubiquitous and all-encompassing thing at the time that I can't imagine any comic would not appreciate and have been influenced in some way by Calvin and Hobbes. It was that big of a thing. You mentioned earlier that it was the last great newspaper comic which we didn't really touch upon this, but it was based upon you know the democratization of everything, right? Everyone has access to publish their own comics and everything else, and that ultimate dilutes it over the course of time. And we're privileged that it was allowed to exist at the time it did so that it could become the phenomenon it did become, or we may have never learned of it. Mm-hmm. And then every comic thereafter <laughs> mm. would not have benefited, right? They would not have incorporated that influence to whatever degree they ultimately did. No, totally. So for those who have never read a Calvin comic, they may have seen Calvin in the wild somewhere or another. And it might be Calvin with his back turned to the camera, urinating on something. Something you don't like. Something you don't like. Usually a car brand. (laughs) Yeah, some kind of car brand. It's always a brand. 
and as no surprise, this is not licensed by Watterson or Universal. Really? Surprise, surprise. You do not say. But what's fascinating is because it's not licensed, it may be one of the earliest examples, at least in modern pop culture, of a meme. Uh, because mm. you see it evolve very differently and people use it for different jokes and purposes. So the earliest identification is a lot older than I thought it would be. That frame is actually from a Watterson Inc. It's from a comic strip June 5th, 1988, where Calvin and Hobbes are having a water balloon fight. And Calvin is sneakily filling a water balloon. Mm -hmm. So that's where he has his back turned and his hands down by his belly and looking over his shoulder. He's filling a water balloon. But shortly thereafter, it showed up the first appearance. What state? (laughs) We're all in the United States and a lot of people elsewhere in the world. Certain states in America are pretty identifiable if you don't live here, based on things you've heard. Forgive me if you're from Texas, but I say Texas. That's your vote. Texas is the first one who demonized, soiled, destroyed this wonderful comedy. I mean, that's a very strong statement. I was just going to say the first place this popped up. But thank you once again, Ben, for putting me in some kind of hot seat. Yeah, I wouldn't say the entire state of Texas voted and all agreed by a majority to do this. You know, some goofball. It's also a big state, so I'm just, you know, I'm going on some numbers here. Okay, so you're going with Texas. Matt? I mean, every every whacked out thing seems to happen in Florida, so I'm going Florida. <laughs> ding, 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 That is correct. Florida, Florida man. Oh, my god. Takes the prize. The first notice wow. of Calvin peeing on something is the letters FSU for Florida State University, which Indeed. has a basketball rivalry with University of Florida. So that's suspected where it came from that's near tallahassee or in tallahassee tallahassee Tallahassee. Um, so that's where it all started and then of course it's evolved over time there's even like uh they say in the documentary too there's like calvin like praying at the cross mm-hmm. as a car sticker mm-hmm. that they Seen put that on mm-hmm. which is like not a thing that watterson gets into it oh i don't think i mean he talks about religious religion in a larger philosophical context but not right. like that I'm very proud that I don't have a peeing Calvin, but I do have memed artwork that is perfect for this show. So at a, a Comic Con years ago, I bought a piece that it's Calvin and Hobbes, and they're they're doing that classic scene where they're walking along a log over a river. Mm-hmm. But it's Doc and Marty from Back to the Future balancing, walking across the log, but in the Calvin and Hobbes you know oh, art nice. style, That's uh, nice. which is pretty great. So in 2011, uh, cartoonists Dan and Tom Harriman came out with Hobbes and Bacon. The comic strip depicts Calvin as an adult who marries Susie Durkins, his arch enemy from the comic strip, the, the girl that Gross is based on keeping out. But arguably the only other kid in the comic right, strip, right. besides the bully. Right, so the bully. <laughs> he had no choice. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they have a daughter named for philosopher Francis Bacon, whom Calvin has given Hobbes uh. to. And so it's the adventures of Hobbes and Bacon, all very similar and all very respectfully done in the same sort of tone and philosophy. But it was only four strips. They just did four original strips, received a lot of attention when it came out. Um, it was really popular. So that was that was a lovely – I think that was a really good honorable tribute. I'm glad it's not somebody who ate Hobbes with the side of bacon because oh that's God. where I thought you were going for no. a minute. I was like, oh, that's dark. No, that's there's dark. a couple dark ones I'm going to get to, but most, oh are, okay. most are very <laughs> honorable. All right. And unfortunately, I'm out of the honorable ones. So we're on to the dark ones. Um, So in 2015, author Martin Levitt writes a novel called Calvin. And it tells the story of a 17-year-old Calvin who was born on the day that Calvin and Hobbes ended, and who has now been diagnosed with schizophrenia. 
and his hallucination of Hobbes, his childhood stuffed tiger. With his friend Susie, who might also be a hallucination, Calvin sets off to find Bill Watterson in the hope that the cartoonist can provide aid for Calvin's condition. Wow. Pretty heavy, right? And not the first time that this has been parodied like this. One of the, the probably the biggest star in the documentary is Seth Green. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Probably most famous for being Dr. Evil's son in the Austin Powers movies. Oh, uh, I was going to say for the Rally Burger commercials. Oh, good pull. <laughs> Holy crap. Very good. No, famous for Robot Chicken, which I loved mm-hmm. Robot Chicken. So funny. And, um, I think the reason Seth Green was in this documentary is because he does a Calvin and Hobbes bit where it's this almost the exact same thing Martine came up with, where it's, you know, Hobbes is not real. Calvin keeps doing worse and horrible things as a child, and then he's committed to an asylum. Again, real dark take on it instead of the most more positive Hobbes and Bacon. It shows up in Family Guy. Like Stewie calls his friend Calvin to tell him a joke, and Calvin's hanging out with Hobbes on his bed. The Big Bang Theory, I couldn't find a clip of that one, or Parks and Rec is also in that. But it's in Portlandia. There's a skit where they're trying to one-up each other on how well-read they are. They're like, did you read this? Yeah, I read it. Did you read this? Yeah, I read it. Yeah. And so they go like, did you read the phone book? Yeah, I read it. I loved it. I read the phone book. So they're like, yeah, did you read Calvin and Hobbes? Yeah, I loved it. That's great. This was kind of fun. Just a random find on YouTube. In 2013, there's a gritty trailer for a Calvin and Hobbes movie that has over a million and a half views. And it's sort of this, like, the world is being torn apart and only Calvin and Hobbes in his imagination can save the world. This is pretty good. The only other two things I found that there were kind of clear lines. So this guy, uh, Jeff Mallet, uh, who's briefly in the documentary, does a comic strip called Fraz. And Fraz really looks like Watterson's style. And especially the main character kind of looks like what Calvin would be if he grew up. But Jeff swears to God, there's no connection whatsoever to Calvin and Hobbes. But he says he was inspired by Watterson. Like, kind of, Matt, how you said, like, how could you be a cartoonist and not be inspired by Bill Watterson afterwards? The last one, but that actually is the first thing that came to mind, is I feel like it maybe started five or six years ago. But I feel like it's a really common trend for parents of our generation to paint a wall in their nursery with having Calvin and Hobbes on that branch in the fall tree, just lazing above like the crib. If you just look like Calvin and Hobbes on Pinterest, that's what you see 10,000 of over and over again. So that's been kind of a nice little tribute. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great image. It's There's something just very peaceful about it. And yeah, I could totally see someone has an artistic inclination. I mean, if I did that on the wall, it would look abysmal. Oh, but yeah. some people have, you know, artistic skill and would paint a really nice, you know, mural. I don't know, but what if you did it like a noir painting? Could you nail a noir painting? No, I could put d- Nick Agency on <laughs> the Nick wall. Agency on a nursery <laughs> wall. It'd be amazing. I don't know where this fits, but I have a philosophical question for both of you. Do you think that any child, and I use that very, very loosely, so from a very young age to late teens, per se, that was a fan of Calvin and Hobbes, like a legit fan, turned out to be a delinquent. It's such a good-natured, deeper-than-surface-level comic that if you're truly a fan of it, I mean, there's there's so many subliminal messages in terms of how to be a decent human mm. that, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure they had, you know, some transgressions here and there, but it's, it's, it's one of those things where you'd almost, I think it would be a stretch to find somebody that just turned out to be a not-great human. Like, there's no serial killer that's like, I got my inspiration <laughs> right. from Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Your point is super well taken. In, in that Dear Mr. Watterson documentary, at one point they interview a couple of parents, 
And the mom says, like, I thought Calvin was a really troublesome boy, and I was worried about my kids reading mm-hmm. about Calvin. And I'm with you where, like, it's the polar opposite. We're like, this is sort of a great handbook to give to a child when they're able to read and start to reflect and think deeply. And, like, yes, Calvin gets in a lot of trouble, but not for anything that bad. Like, he just, like, goofs off a little bit in class, doesn't pay attention a little bit. But he's not, like, burning the school down or anything like that. Well, he's kind of juxtaposed against the bully character. And I don't know if he actually has a name, the school bully. Lonnie, I think. Oh, Lonnie. That sounds familiar. That kid is actually pushing others around and tormenting Calvin. But Calvin's just kind of off doing his own thing. So, yeah, he's rambunctious, but he doesn't seem like a real troublemaker. I mean, would I want to be a teacher and have that kid in my class? Probably not. But do I also think that he's going to grow up and be some terrible human? No. And I think likewise, I'd have to imagine people who would gravitate toward it. Like Ben said, I think your point's taken, Matt. Like, I, I feel like, yeah, it is kind of a, an interesting handbook for philosophy of life. And maybe if people really took those messages to heart, you know, it might be a little better for it. Absolutely. If you were the teacher and Calvin was a student in your class, as often as you would get a little frustrated with him, you'd be smirking, turning away to avoid showing your laughter. That's a fair point. If I was a teacher. Now, I, I can't remember much about that teacher, but I had some joyless miserable teachers throughout the years who probably, I don't even know why they were in the profession. But I take your point. I would definitely be the one who's like, that's not right, Calvin. And I'd turn around and just start cracking up. I'd be telling the other teachers in the lounge, like, oh my God, did you guys hear what Calvin did today in class? Right, exactly. Like, you'd have to be an adult and disciplined in class. But yeah, exactly. In the lounge, you'd be like, oh God, you guys, Calvin. Okay, so, like, this is pretty funny. Well, they talked about that one strip where he ran into the teacher's lounge. Oh, that's right. To avoid (laughs) something. But he imagined them all as, like, monsters and beasts when he was in there. (laughs) Matt, that was exactly what we needed at that exact moment. Because the only way to really finalize this discussion is go to math class to see how this all balances out. To arithmetic. All right, Ben, get your finger off the scale. We need to, (laughs) what's it called? Tear the scale so that we know it's zeroed out. Tear the scale? That's a thing? Tear. T-A-R-E, I think is what it was. To know that sort of terminology and scales, exactly how many drugs do you have to sell to like know that so closely how scales work? I'm not at liberty to talk about my (laughs) private business on this podcast. Thank you very much. Are you the person who was trading drugs in the glow worm that was bought at the Goodwill recently? Ben, I am the one who knocks. That's all you need. I am the one who knocks. (laughs) I am the danger, Ben. (laughs) I am the danger. So speaking of blue math, how pure is this (laughs) comic strip? How much purity? Is it 97% pure? That's what we need to know. I'd love to start with you, Chris. Since this is like a new exposure to you. Okay. How do you feel they act in a modern world? I think we used the word timeless before. And I would just have to say that this does feel very timeless. Coming to it as an adult, it definitely tapped directly into that imagination I talked about as a kid. And I can think of plenty of other comic strips, some of them that I enjoyed, that don't really, I won't say they don't age well, but they don't hold any particular value to me as an adult right now. I don't have any interest in going back to it. However, I could see if I grew up and really had a strong relationship with this comic strip that it's something you could continue to go back to. And you can see it through the people in the documentary, right? Like they're talking about, I give it to my kids and my kids can't put it down. 
there's a weird phenomenon that went on recently. Like, wasn't The Office like one of the most watched shows of mm. 2020? Mm-hmm. And I have, n- I know so many people who kids love The Office. They're not adults. They've never worked in an office. They've never had a job. Children are loving that show. That blows my mind. But I just think it speaks to the heart of the creation. And I think what you get out of this Calvin and Hobbes series is that heart, that soul, that humanity, I guess is a good way to put it, that makes it a very timeless and always relevant thing, you know, even though the world might look different. Yeah, I think it holds up extremely well. This is great. Uh, knowing my love of dinosaurs, I, as far as how well this holds up. <laughs> thousand percent. In 1993, uh, paleontologist and paleoartist Gregory Paul praised Bill Watterson for the scientific accuracy of the dinosaurs that he had drawn in Calvin and Hobbes. So I, I was just kind of impressed by that. And I'm going to say right now, working with fish biologists at my current job, accuracy to them is extremely important, even in a cartoon yeah. caricature. So that is a very high form of praise. I will say that much. Exactly. But uh, in my own terms, I mean, you know, I don't want to reiterate a lot we've said here, but absolutely, I think it holds up potentially best out of a lot of things we've already covered on the show. Mm. Again, we talk about the timeless philosophy that's in here. I'm going to read two very short strips that I think are just incredible, that these were written pre-1996, and I read them today, I mean, this evening, right before recorded, and I was like, wow, these could have been written right now. So Calvin and Hobbes are, are leafing through the newspaper on a Sunday afternoon, and Calvin goes, these are interesting times. We don't trust the government, we don't trust the legal system, we don't trust the media, and we don't trust each other. We've undermined all authority, and with it, the basis for replacing it. And Hobbes goes, interesting is a mild way of putting it. And Calvin goes, it's like a six-year-old's dream come true. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very timely. And then the other one is they're, they're just kind of like walking in the woods, as they do when they have some of their deepest philosophical talks. They're just walking through the woods and talking. And Calvin goes, ever notice how many conversations revolve around TV shows and movies? Our common references are events that never happened and people will never meet. We know more about celebrities and fictional characters than we know about our neighbors. And Hobbes goes, that must be why new houses aren't built with big front porches anymore. And Calvin goes, I can't believe dad won't let me have a TV in my room. So that's his real point. He's just like trying to get a TV in the room. Um, But again, prescient on coming downstairs to talk about a podcast, mostly about fictional stuff that never really existed. The characters in movies and TV shows. Anyway, 100%. Wonderful comic. I don't feel like it's aged. Some of the scenes and things they talk about, you know, not having internet or cell phones, that stuff, sure. But the the adventures and the story is beautiful. Matt, I want to point the microphone at you. You lobbied for this. Why is Calvin and Hobbes worthy of a topic and, and how well does it hold up today? It holds up because of that timeless nature of it. It's not terribly topical. Like, Bloom County is my favorite comic strip of all time. But a lot of it was topical and somewhat political. Bloom County is hilarious and great and very well drawn, but to some degree, a 10-year-old today can't pick it up because you had to be there mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. the strip at the time. Calvin and Hobbes is not that. Uh, it's simple at its core. It's something every five-year-old can relate to, every eight-year-old can relate to, today's kids can relate to. And I think the lessons that are within it, like they're good lessons for today, right? What do they do? They have imaginative adventures. I mean, those very last three words, let's go exploring. Mm -hmm. That's a mantra that I believe in, that I know you two believe in. That is what keeps you young over the course of your life. 
no matter how old you are, if your attitude is let's go exploring, you're going to have a great life. That's a great point you bring up. I mean, we are all three adventurers, and I, I'm not saying that any of us draw a straight line to those final words of Calvin, but it has certainly influenced our philosophy in life. Absolutely. Well, I think we have plumbed the depths. We've we've soared the galaxy of adventure. We've gone through the Cretaceous, survived encounters with dinosaurs. There can only be one order of business left to ink on this page. I do want to say two orders of business because ah. before we get into our thing and we close it out, I just want to thank Matt for joining us oh, and yeah, for of course. That's suggesting the play, this you. topic. Thank you so much for being here. It's been great. My pleasure, guys. I appreciate the welcome and the opportunity. And I, I'll tell you that this school is a hell of a lot better than the last school was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So next episode of 80s High. Oh, yeah. It's one that's been on my mind for a while. And I was inspired by this talk of Calvin and Hobbes. The imagination really struck me. It made me sit there and think, okay, what's something that really captured my imagination that blew me away? And I've been struggling with, do we do this topic now or later? Uh And I just said, you know what? We're going to do it now. Oh, he's going in for it. Okay. What do you think these names have in common? Oh, I love this game. This is a good game. You love this game. It's a good game. Larry. Roy, Lemmy, Wendy, Iggy, Morton Jr., and Ludwig. Are these the California Raisins? <laughs> <laughs> you heard it through the grapevine, buddy. Next time. We're talking about the trashiest snack that they had to advertise. I'm going to be really mad. I. You are going to be very oh. mad because these are the names of seven characters Guarding the Seven Realms, the children of Bowser himself. Oh, God, let me, of course. <laughs> I want to talk about one of the most imaginative games of my childhood. We're going to talk about Super Mario Brothers 3. Oh, my God. On the next episode oh. of 80s High. Um, I'm just going to play my whistle and skip to recording tonight. We're just <laughs> I, I just jumped ahead, and now we're going to start recording. I can't wait to talk about it. Super excited. Are any rule followers going to be really mad about when this came out? 1988. Ah, counts. Okay, we're good. He's clear. Yeah, I've done that. He's clear. I've checked. Gosh, all of the the lawyers in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Great pick. Super excited. Uh, I'm going to do a bunch of mushrooms for it because it seems appropriate uh, so I can get bigger and record louder. Get your warp whistles, put on your tanuki suits, and get ready to throw some hammers. (laughs) Next time... On 80s High. Thanks everyone for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical. Stay radical.